So, Holy Spirit, just thank you for how you're going to uh, lead and guide us through this. Holy Spirit, I ask you personally for help uh, instructing and teaching, going at your pace, and uh, open myself up to you. And we just thank you for what you're going to do here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, session one on Rainbow God, Restoring God's Face to Society. And this becomes our Reformation assignment to restore God's face to society. And this session one, we're going to talk about the knowledge of God. And this becomes a template for understanding all the rest of the sessions that we will be having. And Elizabeth and I are so glad uh, you've joined us. And uh, Elizabeth will be sharing at the end of this session. We're going to be doing this together. And so she will have uh, 10 or 15 Minutes. It's going to be really powerful, um, some of the important insights that she has as well. So this is great. And I'm excited about being able to share this course with you. Uh, it's designed to be complemented by a book that Elizabeth and I co-authored called Rainbow God, The Seven Colors of Love. And so if you haven't read that, we hope you'll take the time to read that as well. Uh, though there will be some overlap with that book if you're familiar with it. It will be done intentionally. Uh, they say the best way to learn is through repetition. And when you are learning something, uh, particularly if you're learning something new, it's important to tell someone what they'll be learning and then tell them what they're actually learning and then tell them what they just learned. <clears throat> and so that's what we'll be doing in some way or another throughout this course uh, as God really is using it to shift us into an entirely new paradigm. Uh, I believe many of you will leave these sessions, the overall course here, with an understanding of God that will positively affect your life in a dramatic way forever. It's my belief. You know, A.W. Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Uh, this is something really to ponder and think about. I'll say that again. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. To the degree we have a limited or diminished perspective of who he is, uh, to that degree we ourselves are diminished or limited. Um, and these messages will expand on our seven mountain mandate. Uh, the seven mountain mandate understanding that has been presented in a previous course as well. If you haven't yet taken that course, we, we highly recommend that as well. And it goes into our kingdom assignment into society and, and one that goes beyond just the assignment after souls. And uh, in case you haven't heard of the concept of the seven mountains or need a refresher, I'll just uh, briefly uh, update you on that, explain that. In every nation, there are seven primary areas of culture um, that were meant to reflect an aspect of who God is. And these seven areas are media, family, arts and entertainment, also called celebration, the mountain of celebration, economy or business, education, religion, where we've understood our assignment mandate, and then government. So uh, the seven mountain mandate says we don't just have good meetings, but we must bring solutions into these seven structures of society. And now in this rainbow God course will be introducing the idea of faces of God, of there being different faces of God that are being restored to society. And this is, in fact, in my consideration, a more advanced understanding of the Seven Mountain Mandate. 
It's the relational understanding of our assignment, which is of utmost importance because our God is love. He doesn't just do things. He is love. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I mentioned our, our book, Rainbow God, has this, the subtitle, The Seven Colors of Love. We are going to fully explore that idea, often going beyond what was written in the book and looking to really bring enough clear takeaways that we hope it will be transformational for you. And so I want to begin by grounding this idea of the faces of God in society to Scripture, giving you a scriptural reference point for that. Uh, so we, we don't think of this as some extra biblical concept. You know, in Numbers 14 and verse 22, God told Moses, But truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And we have several other verses in the, in the Bible that speak of the knowledge of the Lord filling the earth. I'm sure you're familiar with them. I will state another one. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, this, in effect, if we simplify, this is our seven mountains mission, that the whole earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, I used to think that these verses were basically talking about people coming into a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, I now know that this is a, it's much more expansive than that. The saving knowledge of God is just one aspect of the knowledge of God that is available for receiving and displaying. Now, if you picture a rainbow uh, in its seven colors, you can think of salvation as just being one of the colors of the rainbow. Think of it as a blue color of the rainbow. We are doing pretty good with that knowledge of God around the world as, according to the latest numbers, one in every three people on planet Earth, last I read, two, almost two and a half billion people, now claim to be followers of Jesus. Uh, of course, we can say, well, some of them are hypocrites, they're not real, it doesn't matter. At least they're saying they're, they're trying to follow Jesus Christ as opposed to somebody else, and that's impressive numbers. But what we're very weak in is in understanding that there are six other clear aspects or primary aspects of who God is that we are to reveal to planet Earth. This becomes our assignment to first be able to see him in this expanded way and then re-image him in society, to represent him in society. Again, what we know about God is the most important thing about us. We can only re-image, reflect what we've seen. Genesis 1 26 through 28, we won't read it, but you, you know what it says there. It says, we were made in his image, and that's just a reference point. You can check me out on it. And we're intended to bring creation under the order of his expressed image. Uh, as sons and daughters of God, we must gain and reveal the knowledge of both who God is, but also how he is. Uh, that's where the glory comes in. There's a glory to the various facets of his face, these facets of his face that will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we reread in Habakkuk 2.14, to what degree of percentage? 100% as the waters cover the sea. The glory of the Lord is expressed in a nuanced fashion as we first receive and then showcase what that aspect or color of his love looks like. This is what we'll be doing in the forthcoming sessions as we'll delve into the seven specific perspectives of our God, 
and we will look and gain knowledge of him that we will better understand and therefore be able to reflect as our assignment into society. Our Reformation assignment is connected to being able to recognize him and advance his knowledge. Now, as we've advanced in the understanding of our Seven Mountain assignment, uh, it's clear to me that in some ways uh, we've been going at this backwards. We've been quick to run with our assignment, those going up the seven mountains, if you have that understanding, that lingo. We've been quick to, uh, you know, uh, identify the enemy that's there on the seven mountains. It's been like, wow, mammon is an economy. You know, Jezebel's in arts and entertainment. Baal is in the mountain of family, et cetera, et cetera. And we've had this starting point of recognizing the enemy or what the enemy's doing. Again, the starting approach has been backwards for what I've begun to see is really needed. But on the other hand, that's all part of the discovery process when God releases fresh revelation. We now realize that in order for reformation to come, the starting point must be the knowledge of who he is and how he is in every area of society. That's the starting point. Going without that knowledge is like running to battle without weapons. We will have a much clearer understanding of that even before the end of this first session. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 tells us, For the rep- weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. If we would read verse 5, it then says, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So from this scripture, we understand that our battle is a battle of knowledge between competing knowledges. Satan has no actual power to harm God. Don't know if you know that, but it's the truth. He is limited to injuring God by how he distorts the image of God to his sons and daughters. He's taken the reputation of a perfect father whose love is perfect and complete like no other, and he's distorted that reputation in the eyes of those whom this father, this perfect father, loves, whose love is perfect and complete like no other. And he's, he's worked and he's distorted that reputation in the eyes, again, of the very ones that he loves so much. He plans and creates lies and arguments against the correct reputation or perspective of God. We want to understand that's the battlefield. And because Satan has no real power of his own, he is empowered by those he's able to deceive. That's how he receives his power. His lies and arguments then become a stronghold that can hold back entire people groups, entire cities, and entire nations even. This is how he holds sway in each of the seven mountains of culture in every nation. His stronghold is an argument, a mindset, a mentality that doesn't acknowledge God, an argument that doesn't recognize him. If we understand that Satan's stronghold or fortress is nothing but a deceitful argument or idea about God, then we understand that the way to ultimately eliminate his position of stronghold is to bring the correct knowledge of God, the correct idea of God, to that mountain. This is the way we eliminate his position of stronghold. 
is to bring the correct knowledge of God. I'm saying this real slow. I want to be real deliberate with this. And then we're going we're gonna, to you know, re-say it in as many ways as possible because we're here to overthrow lies about God. We've, we've been less than successful in overthrowing principalities because we've not understood the battlefield. We've not understood what the battle really is about. We haven't proceeded correctly, and so we've not done so well. We've talked a lot about overthrowing principalities, but not done so much. We've brought direct warfare against demons and principalities by praying against them. But the root problem is that there's a lie about God that hasn't been addressed and demolished. You know, I'll give you a concrete example in just a moment because it's important in order for this whole course to be properly understood. Uh, the battle is over the knowledge of God. To say it another way, the battle is all about the correct reputation of our Papa. Knowledge of who he is and how he is has been constricted and distorted by the father of lies. Our God is our father. Satan has only fathered lies. When we contend for the restoration of our God's reputation, we're headed for the front lines of spiritual warfare. Our great God is good and he wants to be known, but he wants to be revealed through his enlightened sons and daughters is why Paul in Ephesians 1.17 prays that we might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, not just general wisdom. We are to prioritize knowledge of him above every other knowledge that exists. Why? Well, Paul then goes on to say in verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He wants to be revealed in his glory through his saints as we are enlightened to see him. Uh, this course is designed to assist you in that process of seeing him in an expanded way. You know, in the next verse, Paul lets us know that this knowledge of God is mighty power. It says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. See, expanded, nuanced, multicolored knowledge of God is mighty, mighty power. Because when it's reflected into society, when we see him and re-image him in society, it demolishes the stronghold of Satan in that area of culture. Again, we're talking really, I mean, this is real advanced, sophisticated weaponry here. It's all about the knowledge of God. Now, remember how the original fall of Adam and Eve came about? Satan didn't arm wrestle Adam and Eve into submission. He didn't physically overpower them and drag them out of the garden and away from their innocence. The serpent worked strategically and manipulatively on their perceptions or knowledge of God. They were pure in their knowledge of God, but they were untested. The serpent deceived them by distorting God's image or reputation. He turned the amazing freedom God gave Adam and Eve, you know, of eating of every one of the thousands of, and thousands of trees in the garden, except one. He turned that into an accusation against God. It was a lie. He is holding back something from you. You know the way he said it was half God said, you may not eat of every tree? It was his way of distorting it. He twisted the communication into it feeling like restriction instead of an amazing privilege. Notice the tree they ate of. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan deceived them into eating of another knowledge, and it caused them to lose their place of privilege. When, you know, when they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, like us, gained the ability to look at something or someone, to look at God, and question whether he's good or evil, whether his heart towards us is good or evil. The serpent conspired with an argument against God's reputation. Never since that day, we have been expert doubters of God, and specifically doubters that he's really trustworthy with wholesale good intentions towards us. That initial battle is replayed daily all across the planet through every circumstance we go through, and it has led to systems and mountains of society being built around lies about God. Satan leveraged our propensity to view the goodness of God through every circumstance of our life by convincing us as humanity to construct systems in every area of culture that are at, you know, there are best ways rather than God's best ways. They're built on assumptions he's not going to be there, you know, because we end up believing, well, if he exists, that he certainly doesn't care enough about us to know what's best for us. So we build ways of taking care of ourselves. The structures of society are, are built systems that are, you know, on how to take care of ourselves based on lies about God, based on the fact that you can't count on him. Systems built on lies about God will always be place, they will always be a place for a stronghold of the enemy. So our assignment is to know God so well that we recognize the foundation of each lie and now come and build upon the truth of who he actually is. Again, the war is all about God being properly known. So let's go to the Bible now for a concrete example that will give us, uh, you know, it just a, a vivid picture of what this can look like when it's fleshed out. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings 18, and we're going to connect to the well-known story of Elijah the prophet as he's taken on the prophets of Baal. Before we read this, let's understand the context and the setup here. Ahab is the king of Israel. He's not a good king. He's taken Jezebel as his wife. Uh, not a good thing. And she's remained a household name, both in and out of the church since that time. You know, who hasn't heard of the term a Jezebel or a Jezebel spirit? Well, she's the namesake. Jezebel had introduced Baal worship to Israel. And it was now so rampant that we find that there were only 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed to Baal. We find that out later. Baal worship is a subtle thing because it, it was not something that demanded you abandon your existing worship. You didn't have to leave your God. You just incorporate Baal. So Israel is literally serving two gods at this time. They're celebrating feasts to some level and following customs uh, that acknowledge allegiance to the true God, the traditional God of Israel. And they're also worshiping Baal. And because of Jezebel's influence and power, they've become more zealous in the worship of Baal. She now has 450 prophets of Baal and another 400 prophets of the related goddess called Asherah. And as we get into chapter 18, the nation is on the tail end of a three-year drought that had been imposed upon Israel by Elijah because of their Baal worship. 
Uh, and so in verse 17 of chapter 18, Ahab and Elijah, the prophet, meets the king. And Ahab the king greets him with the friendly, is that you, O troubler of Israel? In verse 18, Ahab says, uh, actually, Elijah says, actually, you are the troubler of Israel, as you have chosen to follow the Baals. In verse 19, if you're following, Elijah then asks King Ahab to gather all Israel before him on Mount Carmel and to also bring the 850 prophets of Baals. Of Baal. What follows is Elijah proposing a contest, you know the story, to see who can find the God who answers by fire. The prophets of Baal were told to build an altar to put a bull on it, and when done, call upon Baal for fire from heaven. Elijah, as the prophet of God, he would do the same thing. All would know who God really is by seeing who is the God who answers by fire. Of course, we find out that our God is the one who answered by fire. I give you the punchline, spoiler alert there. But now let's look at the instruction before we can receive. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there's something else we can receive by noting the process that was often missed. This is something the Lord began to show me in the last couple of years. It was really powerful. It ties into this whole thing of the battlefield of the knowledge of God. Um, we're going to see that Elijah takes out Baal in a very unique way, understanding the battle field, and the use of the knowledge of God as a powerful weapon. And, and so before I go there, I want to present an idea, uh, just my thoughts and what I believe about demons and principalities. And there, there's, there's freedom for disagreement, other opinion on it. I won't, uh, I, you know, it's fine. I won't say you're wrong, but I'll just tell you that's what I believe. Um, you know, there's disagreement as to whether demons actually have power of their own or if their power is just a power to deceive. I don't know if you've thought through that or discussed that with people. Uh, in, Western, in the Western Hemisphere, perhaps, it may be uh, much easier to believe they, they don't really have power. You know, you don't see it. The, the actual evidence of the demonic has not been as, as open as in, say, other, or like Africa. Uh, and so it'd be easier to believe, well, no, they can only deceive. If you've lived in Africa or heard about things there, you may have uh, heard about witch doctors and demonized people who can actually shift shape you know, turn into an animal or release deadly curses or suddenly appear and suddenly disappear or be stronger than 10 men. And so when you see that, then you become sold on the idea that demons actually have power. I'm going to suggest a, a kind of a third option that is relevant to our story and message. I believe that demons can have power, but that it's not their own. Uh, that it has to be given to them by people. Um, we give them power when we put our trust in them. We trust them when we buy the lie they sell. Uh, so I don't believe demons, they probably have some power, I don't know what, but they don't have much power without stealing it off humans. And I get this from the scripture, I didn't just make it up out of the thin air or just by, you know, we compare anecdotal uh, ideas about demons. The Bible says in Isaiah 14, 16, and 7, 16 and 17, speaking of the devil, says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who would not release the house of his prisoners? The devil is the demon kingpin, and it says that one day we'll look at him and that he would be so pitiful that we would say, is this the one who's been whooping us for all these years? Now, if Satan himself, when stripped of his deceiving power, becomes pitiful, 
then how much more any of his cronies? You with me on that? Here's something else I believe. I believe that not only do angels outnumber demons by two to one margin, we read that in the scriptures, but their essence is different. I believe that it's been different from the time Satan was cast out of heaven. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's an interesting description. Now, I believe that when Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven, they literally lost their essence of light. We know God is light. The Bible says that. Those who see angels often see angels. Those who have seen them, they often see them as lights. Those who see the demonic or demons usually see them as some darkened light, something dark or dingy, some different essence. They, they, they obviously still have some dark matter energy, but I believe they have been stripped of light. I think they have literally lost their photons. Photons are light at its smallest particle. Now, that's not directly biblical, um, but I'm putting two and two together and just coming up with four on it. Whatever energy they still have is something less, I believe, than what is carried by angels. So it's not just that we outnumber or they outnumber them two to one. There is something they lost in the transaction of falling as well. Um, so, however, we also, humans, are made up of photons. That's what Jesus told us right up front. You are the light. We know that, this is not revelation, this part. We know that scientifically, and it's known biblically, that we have light energy in us. Jesus, again, said, you are the light of the world. Being made in his image, we have the, that element of who he is. So I believe Satan and his company still needs photons to have real power. And I believe they look at us as their potential battery packs. They strip it from us the same way they stripped it from Adam and Eve. Remember, they gained authority over the whole world. Adam and Eve, in essence, put their trust in the serpent, and in doing so, gave him power and authority that they had. So I don't believe demonic principalities have real power or much, apart from what they suction off from their willing prey. But with that leached power, they do, in fact, have something of significance, something not just to say, ah, oh, there's no real power. When Satan is able to deceive people and they trust his lie, they, in effect, supply the power lines, the authority that he needs to further advance. I believe this is why principalities are different depending on where you go. If you've, gone, if you've ever heard any messages about principalities or just the study of it, if, if a principality was just strong because he's strong... Uh, in and of himself, then we wouldn't take note that in certain places, certain principalities exist, and in other places, they don't. If you go to a certain region of India, you know, the frog is worshipped. And a principality gets behind the frog idol and has actual power based on people buying into it and being deceived. Here in the United States, that same territorial frog demon doesn't have much traction. It's because it's hard to find someone who believes in them. So there's no battery pack for the principality. So a demonic, if you're getting this, a demonic is important for our conversation. A demonic stronghold is formed behind a lie, a lie that conspires against the knowledge of God. In the lie, there's usually a promise of provision and protection. And ironically, or not, 
Those are the two areas that idolaters and idolatrous nations will almost will generally be the most compromised in. Where idolatry abounds, provision and protection are usually decimated. Everyone still with me? All right. So back to 1 Kings 18. That was necessary to go where we're going. Baal is the enormous principality over Israel. He is empowered by all the trust and worship given him. Now picture this, a huge Goodyear blimp called Baal hanging over Israel. Now let's know how Elijah decides to take out Baal. He's going to take him out without fasting being mentioned, without unity being mentioned, and without talking to Baal. Let that sink in for just a moment. Not knocking any of them. That's not how he did it. This is because he's aware that this blimp called Baal is empowered by the people through a lie about God that they are believing. He's got to cast down the argument. Therefore, Elijah's assignment and strategy is to cut off the lines, the power lines between Baal and the people, the people and Baal. He's going to go after the power lines, and his weapon is going to be his knowledge of God. What you think about God, what you know about God is the most important thing about you. He will not target Baal because Baal isn't really the source of the power. The people are the source of the power. They're the ones providing the photons, if that's what it is. They have yielded their power to Baal, not by force, but by being deceived. And they have been told that Baal is protecting them and that Baal has been providing for them, even though they have just gone through three years of profound drought that has killed their economy. They just think they have to up the Baal worship and, and things will turn around. Instead of getting the logic of what's taking place, the more they've worshiped Baal, the more in trouble they're getting. They're like, oh, we got to do it even more. We got to cut ourselves more. All of this is so important because it connects to our assignment in all the seven mountains. This connects to our reformation assignment right now in society to understanding it. So in verse 19 of 1 Kings 18, when Elijah says, gather all the people, this is very strategic. He's going to bring down Baal by bringing his knowledge of God to his mountain. Let that soak in. That's our assignment. Gain a knowledge of God, bring it to your mountain, use it to bring down the enemy. In verse 21, Elijah will address all the people. Verse 22, it'll say, Elijah said to the people. In verse 30, Elijah said to all the people. Verse 37, Lord, that this people may know. And then verse 39, and when all the people saw it. You see that? We don't just fight strongholds of the devil in a secluded church meeting or encounter. Elijah isn't saying, I take authority over you, Baal. He's just going after his battery pack. It wouldn't have mattered if he had fasted 120 days because everybody but 7,000 has put their trust and belief in him. That wouldn't give him enough power. He's got to do something on the power lines. He's got to sever that. So the children of Israel all gathered before Elijah out Mount Carmel, and Baal and his battery pack are all there. We'll go to verse 21. And it says, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Then followed him, but the people answered not a word. Now, why no word from the people? It's because they realize that this really is their conundrum. They don't know who God is. Elijah has nailed them in his diagnosis. They are faltering between two opinions, between two arguments about who really is God. The false knowledge argument has to be cast down. 
The lie about God has to be exposed. Elijah further explains the purpose of the meeting to the people and how things are going to go. Again, back to they're going to both build altars and sacrifice a bull. Whoever's bull still remains at the end of the day means their God is full of bull. I don't know if it's a good joke or not. But verse 24, he says, Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord God, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, That is well spoken. I go, yeah, we really don't know. Uh, there's a lot in that. It's, it isn't just that they're evil, heathen idolaters. We can think that. Yeah, they were evil, heathen. I imagine going to worship Baal. They really don't know who God is, they've been confused. Leadership of the nation has steered them wrong, and they would love some clarity on that matter. They have this dual knowledge in their heads, and it's time for the real knowledge to impose. Verse 26, so they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of the Lord from the morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. Now, these were Jezebel's elite prophets. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made, verse 27. And it was so at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating or he is busy or he is on a journey. I love Elijah. Or he is sleeping and must be awakened. Perhaps he's on Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> Just finishing a tweet. Elijah is making fun of them. Verse 28, so they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Wow, they're doing bloodletting to their idol, again, but nothing. Verse 29, and it was so when midday was passed that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. This has gone on all day now, if you get it. And I love this, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. You see, Elijah had planted a doubt in the people's mind about whether Baal was really God. And so for a moment, they were withholding their power. They're pinching. They're pinching the power lines. They're not giving their photons. And Baal's like, wait a minute, somebody's challenging. And again, if Baal was such a powerful principality apart from what people give them, then why didn't he show a little fireworks? If Baal was so powerful without the people, why didn't he do something? Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He then goes on to build the altar, and he prepared the bull. He then has 12 barrels of water poured on the altar, so none would say he had done some pyrotechnic trick, you know. Elijah then addresses God, not Baal, in verse 36. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known. Again, the battle is always about things being known. It's over the correct knowledge. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me. Why? That this people may know that you are the Lord God and have turned their hearts back to you again. Then verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trenches. Everything disappeared. Verse 39, 
Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Verse 40, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Things were kind of, you know, extreme in those days. We don't execute people anymore, but we want to do that with principalities and powers. That would be nice. You see, the people in amazement cry out, the Lord, he is God, twice. It was, an, it was amazed, a surprise cry. Conveniently, it's also the name of Elijah. Eliah, Eliah, the Lord, he is God. They could have been saying, Elijah, Elijah, but that's what his name meant. That was his assignment so that people would know. It's our assignment, the Elijah Revolution, the Elijah calls to make people know that he is God so they're no longer wondering. They seemed surprised to know it was him. They just now realized they had been duped all this time, that Baal had no power compared to God. Again, want you make sure we get the picture here because this applies to everything we're doing in society now. The big blimp Baal is hanging over Israel. He's all puffed up with power, <sighs> given up by this battery pack, the people's belief. Suddenly, when the fire comes down on the altar that Elijah had built, in a moment, the people go, hey, you're not God, to Baal. And one by one, they're, they're, just, they're disconnected their power lines from him. And if you, you, know, you get this picture, here's what's going on. Baal is all of a sudden, in an instant, I should fall over. That's what he did. He begins his massive deflation until he can't even protect his bloodletting prophets. Amazing. Elijah now asks Baal's former battery pack to go run down the prophets of Baal. In an instant, he's won them over. And that day, physical execution, as I said, was in order. Today, spiritual execution is in play. We are under a New Testament set of rules. In one day, Elijah cast down the principality of Israel by proving to the people that he served the God who has the real power and who has the real favor. This is our assignment in society today. This is how reformation will come to society. It's not about learning to rebuke and command demons. It's about bringing the correct knowledge of God that exposes the lie of the devil. Then you can tell them to run. In our next messages, we will go mountain by mountain and look at how God desires to be seen and revealed that he may turn back their hearts to him. You know, it's in the revealing of God that people's hearts are changed. It's in the revealing of God that people's hearts are changed. Elijah had already done the judgment thing on them. You know, if we had read 1 Kings 17, the chapter before, it said, Elijah said to the people, because of your idolatry, I'm giving you a three-year famine. Well, he didn't say how many years it would be. He said, there will be no more water until I say. So he tried the typical Old Testament prophet judgment way. The beginning of this, if we had read 1 Kings 18, the first verse, the Lord said, Elijah, go tell the people I'm sending water. I know what you said, but I've decided I'm sending water. He's going with his model, and we've got to get this. It says in Romans, the kindness of God leads to repentance. We have this Old Testament model that still affects too many of us. We think, man, judgment's going to come and you're going to learn. Well, Elijah gave them judgment. For three years, they got worse. And God said, I'm going to be kind to them. I'm going to give them water. I'm going to show who I am, and they will follow me. And as soon as they were convinced, 
who he was, they did follow him. He is the desired of the nation, desired of the nations, Haggai too. We have to learn to see him that way and then model. Let's give up, model that. Let's give up the model of judgment as the hope for repentance and let's see that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Now Elizabeth's gonna have a, a few minutes of uh, uh, really special stuff as well and then we'll see you with session number two. Ooh, that's really good stuff. And I'm, I'm just blown away at the level of revelation that God is trusting with our generation. You know, if you look back and you see um, what's been unfolding in our short lifetimes, um, you could just take any area of what we think of as our, our niche as Christians. You can look at worship, our, our intimacy as it's played out through worship and see how just in my lifetime, from majority of hymns and then choruses, and then it just began this whole new um, way of worshiping God where we could just pour out our hearts and express to him from a very intimate place, you know, directly to him, what what we love about him. And and um, you look at the the whole inner healing movement, um, in our, in our lifetimes, just the revelation that God has poured out about the lies that we have personally, individually believed about him and about ourselves because of trauma and circumstances that we've been through. And what I'm beginning to see is in each of these areas, um, another area being like um, things of the Holy Spirit. I remember when I was young, it was a really big deal to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then the whole movement of prophetic and, and experiencing people that could prophesy. And now we've begun to understand we can all prophesy. And we're supposed to, everywhere we go, and, and see the treasure in, in each other and call out the treasure in each other. But if you look at any of these things, you see how God has just been so intentional and coming full circle and using all of these different aspects of revelation that we've been growing in. It's all converging and melding into this, um, what Johnny and I, the language we're using is the seven mountains, but it really is nothing less than the kingdom of God coming to earth. And as a society, we are growing in the knowledge of God, especially as his sons and daughters, those of us that already know that we're his sons and daughters. Even those who don't yet know that they're his, they don't realize it, but what they're growing in, that sense of we can't allow injustice, we can't allow um, you know, inequality, we, we wanna stand up for freedom, those things in their hearts are actually God. They just don't yet know that it's him. So I've had a very unique perspective on this journey of the seven mountains, um, my kids and I have, and, and we've heard the seven mountains preached from the time, you know, Johnny first was getting this download from the Lord before he ever wrote about it, even before he began to preach about it in our local church at the time. At the same time, over the first several years that he was speaking about this, um, God was going after this really intimate place in my own heart and in my life. And I remember sitting, you know, those several years and listening to the messages um, and this fresh revelation and, 
and trying to um, make sense of this really big picture um, revelation about, you know, restoring the kingdom of God coming to earth and restoring the correct reputation of God to the earth. I was trying to let all that in while at the same time God had his finger on this really personal place in my life where I was wrestling with the goodness of God. And I had been through things like all of us have in in our childhood that had caused my perspective of him to become very skewed. and, And frankly, I hated him. For a little while, I really hated God, which was very inconvenient as a pastor. Um... But I, around the same time, we, we went through a, a course, an inner healing course. It's much like probably some that you would be aware of. And, and in this inner healing course, we began to, um, to learn some tools. And, and like most of these inner healing um, courses, it basically centered around the idea that as children, we go through difficult trauma and, and um perceived trauma, and we have these places in our hearts where the lie of the enemy becomes sown into our hearts about ourselves and about God. And so as I was, as I was processing through that over months and over a couple of years, I was listening to this seven mountain understanding and, and what does it look like for God to show up in every area of culture? And I began to see this overlay in this um, this connection. And what God showed me is that the collective hearts of cities and nations are no different than our individual hearts. The same God that knows how to heal and restore my heart and, and go after the specific lies that I've believed and bring truth to those places and bring freedom to those places, the same God knows how like only he can, to deal with the collective hearts of cities and nations. And the culture, every area of culture, the seven that Johnny listed, are basically the atmosphere or the, the environment that would be the similar environment of each of our hearts and our mentalities. It's played out in each area of culture in a very specific way, which over the next seven sessions we're going to delve into. But what I want to very briefly um, give you right now is a tool that became really um, front and center, not only for my personal healing, but for, I believe, um, the healing that God is going to use you and I to bring the truth about who he is into every area of culture. And for those of you that have um, met or heard Bob Hartley speak, you've heard him speak uh, using the term adoration. And he talks about adoring the face of God or the different faces or aspects of God. Um, For our purposes, over the next seven sessions, Johnny's going to begin each session speaking about gazing at each of the seven faces of God. And this is something that, as we learn to do individually, it's going to make a huge difference. It comes from Psalm 34, verses 3 and 4. And this is a scripture that's probably really familiar to all of you. It's, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. And then it goes on to say, he delivered me from all my fears. So, So that I can stick with our time clock, I'm just going to read something to you very quickly, and then I'm going to briefly close this session with prayer. 
So, we're delivered from the things we're afraid of. I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. We're delivered from the things we're afraid of when we're able to magnify the parts or faces of God that we're having a hard time seeing. So what do you magnify? With a magnifying glass, you magnify something you're having a difficult time seeing, right? And a magnifying glass or a, um, whatever that thing's called that you zoom in is something, a tool that you use. Well, adoration or gazing at the face of God becomes a tool that we can use to literally see an aspect of God that we need to see in order to be delivered from fear. Well, fear is present where there is no love. And love is present, of course, wherever God is. Wherever the knowledge of God is, there is no fear. And the knowledge of God comes from the truth about who he is, right? So in order to see the truth, the nuanced truth of his goodness and what his goodness specifically is in each area of culture as it was originally intended to be, um, is seen as we magnify him. You know, that scripture and, and the word magnifying God in through especially a lot of the Psalms can sound kind of trite, and we forget. It's more than just a phrase that we use in worship. To magnify him is literally to focus in on that specific aspect of God. You can't hold God hostage and say, if you deliver me, then I will magnify you. Gazing or magnifying, adoring that face of God is what delivers us from our fear. So this is how our family has learned to adore God and our simple way of explaining um, Bob Hartley's version of adoration is you take that face of God and literally I'll be driving my daughter to school and I'll be like, what, what face of God do you need to see today? I remember when she was at her new school and she was lonely and needed to see friends, meet new friends. So we would begin to adore the face of God as our friend. And so this is how you do it. There are three parts to it. One is remember and recall that aspect, that face of God in Scripture. So God, I remember when you were a friend to David, and he would sit out in the fields watching his sheep, and obviously he didn't feel alone because you talked to him, and, and he talked to you, and there was this intimacy that you and David had together. Surely you were the friend to him that no one else was, and you were the friend that showed up when he went to battle with all of the different kings over his lifetime and his reign as king, etc., And then the second part of adoration or gazing, magnifying God, is to recall in your own past when you've seen that aspect or that face of God. God, I remember with my daughter, it was, I remember when I met so-and-so, and, and I didn't realize she would become my very best friend, but you brought her into my life, and she's been an amazing friend to me. And so the third part, look at that face of God in your future. So God, I know that because you brought me a friend back then, you can do it again. And today I'm going to look for your face as my friend 
who will introduce me to the friends that I need here at school. See the simplicity of this adoration, but it is profound in its impact. As we learn to magnify the face of God, he really does deliver us from our fears. When we choose to zoom in on that aspect of who he is that we're having a hard time seeing, you're going to begin to see him in the nuanced ways that he's good and that he's faithful and that he's kind. That's important for you, but it's really important for our generation because we are called to usher the kingdom in and to advance the truth about who God is at a speed and a pace that has never happened on planet Earth before. And we cannot give away what we don't have. You can only give away that face of God, that heart of his that you've had revelation about. So these tools become important for you individually, for us individually, because what we have, we can then give away. What we see, we can reflect and reimage in the earth. So, Father, we thank you that you are teaching us. You are um, raising us up to understand all of the ways that we can grow in the knowledge of who you are. And like Elijah, God, we want to be fearless with the knowledge that we already have of you. We're fat with, with an understanding that so many don't have, that you're good and you're kind and you're faithful. God, would you teach us over this course, would you teach us how to understand more of the nuances of your goodness so that we can have an understanding of how to display the true heart, your correct reputation in our generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was made available by contributions from listeners like you. To donate, go online to restore7.org. Thank you.